10. I'm going to begin the chapter in, with the first 13 verses. In Isaiah 37, it says, And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah and Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, which with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Tirakah, the king of Ethiopia. He has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Reseth, and the people of Eden who were in Telatsar. The book of Isaiah, remember, can be roughly broken down into two gigantic themes. The one theme is the theme of judgment. The other theme is the theme of comfort. We learn that God is holy. We learn that God will judge. We learn that God's glory, the weight of his character, his revealed compassion, that in his revealed character, it is his desire to deal with people in mercy and compassion. He's not looking for a reason to judge you. He's looking for a reason to comfort you. He's not looking for a reason to condemn you. He's looking for a reason to forgive you. And he finds the mercy and the compassion in the forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. The word salvation appears 28 times in the book of Isaiah. Other key words in the book include holy and throne and glory and judgment and comfort and everlasting spirit and the holy one of the Lord. But what all of those words refer to is the ability of God to deliver. 
Save. That's what salvation means. It means to deliver on so many different levels. It can mean to deliver on a spiritual level. It can mean to deliver on a on a mental, emotional level. It can mean to deliver on a physical level. And you know what's interesting is God promises deliverance. And that means one of two things. That he will miraculously deliver you through the trial, through the pain or through the hardship. Or it means that he will deliver you and give you the strength and the courage and the grace. The comfort and the support that's going to be necessary to face every trial, every task. Everything that's going on in your life. You see, we pray for wellness and we should pray for wellness. We pray for wealth rather than poverty. We pray that our bills will will be paid rather than that we go into debt. And all of those things are important. And then there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we're afraid to pray the obvious that sometimes if our sickness will glorify God, if our poverty will glorify God, if our deprivation will glorify God, if our circumstance will glorify God, if not having a house or not having a home or not having a husband or not having a wife or or not having a job, if, it, if, if, if in some way that will glorify God, we're, we're reluctant to pray that prayer. Because we don't understand that our victory is fully and firmly planted in Jesus. We've seen the men come from the king. We've heard the message to the king. And now Hezekiah is going to reveal his own concern, his deep distress, the misery of the king. In the opening verse in chapter 37 where it says, and so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, what? The message that took place from chapter 36 and chapter 37. For those of you who are just joining me, the chapters 35 and 36 contained a message that was bleak and stark, full of threats and ridicule. The armies of Assyria had come down from the north, had destroyed everything in their path, and over 200,000 soldiers had surrounded the city of Jerusalem. The army had arrived. Rabshakeh, before the battle even begins, demands their unconditional surrender. Before the fight even begins, it's for them to give up. And Hezekiah's response indicated his deep emotional distress. He tears his clothes. He covers himself with sackcloth. These are the biblical images of deep grief and deep repentance. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that is the message of the threatenings that was going on. He tears his clothes. He covers himself with sackcloth. He then goes into the house of the temple of the Lord. He understands that the troops have no chance against the army of Assyria. He understands that he has no power to save himself or to save his people. Only the Lord is going to bring about deliverance. Only the Lord is going to bring about salvation. But there's a 
there's a little clue that's given to us even in Hezekiah's response. When you come to that place, that that moment of crisis in your life. When you have exhausted all of your remedies and all of your resources and the only thing that you have to look forward to. Is the promise of God, it it should begin with deep grief, personal repentance. And the house of the Lord. By the way, the house of the Lord is a great place to be. When you find yourself in times of need. But look what happens in verse 2. Before going to the temple, Hezekiah sends his entourage, this delegation, to seek out Isaiah, to ask for prayer, and then to ask for a word from the Lord. It says, then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. In other words, before going to the prophet of God, in order to hear the word of God, they clothe themselves in the garment of grief and repentance, indicating their desire to hear from God. Have you ever tried to share the Bible with someone who really wasn't ready to hear it? Have you ever confronted someone in their sin and circumstances with a Bible verse, but they were not prepared at all? To turn from their sin. What we discover here is that the leadership of Jerusalem is now ready to experience the deliverance of the Lord. In verse three, it says, and they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is is a day of trouble and rebuke in verse three and blasphemy for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. Here's what they're in effect saying. The message of Hezekiah. We are in a dark day. We are in a desperate day. The delegation are very much aware it is a sad day. It is a desperate day. It's a day of trouble. It's a day of rebuke. It's a day of blasphemy. Because they understand what's happening. They understand in part. That it appears that this is a day of discipline. This is a day of rebuke. This is a day of chastening for past sins. Now, remember, in chapter 36, it was a call to stand in a time of trouble. It's a time to stand in a time of trial. And here's what the delegation is saying to Isaiah. The days come. The day of trial has come. The day of trouble has come. For many of us, that day of trial, that day of trouble, that day of pain usually takes different forms. It can take the the day when the doctor tells you that you have cancer. It's taken. It's the day has has passed for many people in Southern California as some of them have gotten the news. Guess what? Your house is completely burned and there's nothing left. Have you seen some of the images on the camera? Of a person's face who looks into the flame and they see that everything that they've worked for is gone. It's the day of trouble. It's the day of trial. It's the day of pain. And look what they says for the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. In other words, today is the day when the baby is supposed to be born. 
But have you ever met a mother who was pregnant because of pain and because of sorrow, because of circumstances, because of health reasons? They just simply did not even have the strength to bring their baby to term. And so they're crying out to God for the strength to stand. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, gives us a little bit of a picture of that. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see God looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. The idea being that in the day of sorrow, in the day, day of trouble, in the day of pain, in the day of deprivation, here's what you don't want to do because you have two choices. You can trust God or you can be bitter towards God. At the end of verse three, like I said, it illustrates a weak mother unable to even have enough strength to deliver their children from danger. And the image is one that the leadership of Judah and Jerusalem understand the day of trouble has come. An overwhelming army has come. The threats and the ridicule and the humiliation has come and the resources are unavailable. And they have no idea how to stand. And in verse four, it says, it may be that the Lord, your God, will hear the words of the Rab Shekah. Remember, the Rab Shekah is the envoy. It's the ambassador from from the Assyrian king whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. The idea being perhaps the Lord has heard the blasphemy, the ridicule, and he's taken it personally. In other words, he heard all of the theological trash talk that was coming from the other end of the, of the wall, that we're going to hurt you, we're going to destroy you, we're going to humiliate you, and we're going to leave you a trash heap. And so they appeal to Isaiah, the man of God, to pray. And then to pray for the survivors. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. In other words, pray for the people who have so far survived. And Isaiah gives a concise and a comforting picture of hope and of comfort and of deliverance. In verses 5 through 7, it says, So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, speaking of 
of King Shennacherib, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Here's what Isaiah is saying. Don't be afraid of their threats. Don't be afraid of their blasphemies. Remember, a blasphemy is to speak ill of. It's not to speak well of. The Lord himself has heard the threats against Jerusalem. The Lord himself has heard the mockery. The Lord himself has heard the blasphemies against the name of the Lord. And the Lord himself will call Shennacherib home to his own country, Assyria. And there he will face a violent and unexpected death. He will be cut down by the sword. And by the way, as soon as Isaiah makes this prediction, the Lord begins to set into motion a series of events that's going to guarantee the outcome of Isaiah's prophecy. So Isaiah basically says to them, hey, guess what? You are going to be delivered. They are going to leave. You're going to be able to eat food. And then in verses eight and nine, it says, then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Tirakah, the king of Ethiopia, he's coming out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. Now, we're unsure of Libna's location. It appears to be a town that was north of Lachish. You, you understand that the Assyrian army is coming down from the north. And as they are consuming and absorbing everything, there's a, a series of mop up or, or cleanup forces that continue to, to, to subdue the region. But while the king Shennacherib is in Lachish, Rabshakeh is in Jerusalem, there's a rumor that's heard. The rumor is that the king of Cush or the king of Ethiopia in the province that you and I now known as Egypt, Ethiopia, and the Sudan, they hear a rumor that the king of Egypt is marching north up the coast of Philistia in order to join forces with Hezekiah's army and repel the northern invaders. And so it would appear that this rumor of the alliance creates a sense of unrest in King Shennacherib. He's worried about an army coming from the east. He's worried about an army coming to the north. And it would appear that in order to prevent Judah from joining forces with the southern advancing army that, that's mobilized against the Assyrian troops, the king sends now a second message to Jerusalem. And in the second message, what he does is he creates this message and he, he has it sent and placed into the hands of King Hezekiah. And here's the message. It's found in verses 10 through 13. It says, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Now, remember, this is the king Shennacherib saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. In other words, your prophets are going to say, God's going to deliver you. Don't listen to him. Your prophets are lying. But he even goes one step further. God's lying. You've been sold a bill of goods. 
It's as if those people in your life from time to time who will say to you, Bible's not true. Promises of God aren't true. You believe a fairy tale. It's one big, fat, stinking joke. And then he says, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gotsan and Haran and Ritzef and the people of Eden who were in Telitzar. Where is the king of Hamath in verse 13? The king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hina, Eva. Here's what's happening. The king is trying to convince Ezekiah. Look, it's like the Borg in Star Trek. Resistance is futile. We will absorb you. Resistance is futile. Do not trust your God. He reminds the king of all of the countries that that they've attacked and destroyed. He then asks Hezekiah, why should you be any different? No known God or gods have been able to deliver their people from the might of Assyria. Shennacherib then threatens Hezekiah personally. He asks the question, where is the king of Hamath? Where is the king of, of, of Gotsan, Retzaf? The people of Eden, he's basically throwing out the gauntlet. He says, what happened to all of these people who resisted me? The right answer is they each and every one of them died a brutal, painful, violent death. It's like if someone came to you and they shook you down. We're here to provide a security for you. With just a simple insurance payment, you will be rest assured that rocks won't come through your windows. People won't try to kick down your door. And what happens if I don't pay? You know the neighbor down the street and his neighbor and his neighbor and his neighbor. Have you noticed that each and every one of them were firebombed? Who knows, but something terrible might happen to you also. That's exactly what's happening. But King Shennacherib made a fatal error. Unlike other gods, the God of Israel was real and living. Shennacherib was right. As he came down like a firestorm, there were people who cried out to rocks and sticks and idols, and they were unable to be delivered. Just like today, there are people who believe the God of the Bible is simply a man-made God delusion. There's a guy named, named Hawkins who has written a book called The God Delusion. And he basically says, Christians are deceived. The Bible is not true. God is something that people invented in order to make themselves feel good about themselves. You see, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those that believe that our planet and this life and this circumstance has purpose. And then there are those people who believe it has no purpose. That we're here quite accidentally. And to make purpose out of an accident is absurd. In his wonderful new book entitled Slandering Jesus, Dr. Erwin Lutzer lists six lies that people tell about the man who said he was God. 
how that Jesus's family tomb had been discovered with the bones of Jesus inside, how Jesus wasn't really crucified, how Judas did Jesus a favor, that Jesus was only a man, that Jesus had a deep, dark secret. And you know what the deep, dark secret is? That he was the son of a Roman soldier and a woman who lived in the northern part of the Galilee. That Joseph really wasn't his father at all, but he was the illegitimate son of Mary and some Roman soldier who occupied the Galilee. And finally, that Jesus is just one of many, that he's just one guy among many guys. And it doesn't matter. He quotes Oprah Winfrey, quote, here's Oprah. I don't normally quote Oprah, but this time it's for a reason. Here's Oprah. One of the biggest mistakes we make is to believe that there's only one way to live. There are many ways. There are many paths to what you call God, unquote. Oprah couldn't be more wrong. There really is only one path to God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. And what some people don't really understand is that she's insulting God. And she's slandering Jesus. You see, there's something more terrifying. There's something more traumatizing. There's something more deadly than hurricanes and floods and war and fire and pestilence and cancer. It's called sin. It's the enslaving power of sin. And there is no greater deliverance than God's power to deliver from sin in the person of Jesus Christ. God has a history of deliverance. So what do you think? God had given assurance to the children of of Judah and Jerusalem. He had given the assurance of deliverance. Hezekiah faced impossible odds. Hezekiah was in a hopeless situation. Hezekiah is in a situation where he has no resources to deliver himself. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Have you ever been in a situation where the odds seemed impossible, the situation seemed hopeless, And you had no resources in order to help yourself. And God is going to use Isaiah. God is going to use Isaiah as a spokesman, as a prophet, as a person who brings the word of God to the people of God to impart hope. See, you you may think that you've come here just for a Bible study and we open up the Bible and we look at the words of Isaiah and we think of these strange historical circumstances that we're reading about. But do you realize that every time we open this book and every time we hear the word of the Lord, we're hearing words of hope? And by the way, what compares to the assurance of God in times of need? What compares to the promise of God in times of distress, in times of sorrow, in times of deprivation, in times of loss? What do you do? What do you do when you wake up one morning and the crisis of life confronts you? It's that day. 
It's that day. It's the day that you, you hoped it would never come. But it has come. And you're going to have to trust the Lord. By the way, it's the Lord who brings comfort and reassurance. It's the Lord who builds confidence. It's the Lord who provides courage and security. And when the Lord assures of of his presence and of his promise, we're encouraged and inspired and persuaded and fulfilled. And you see, that's what happens when you open up your Bible. I I think of Joshua chapter one, verse nine, where remember when Joshua is taking over for Moses and he has to occupy the land. And remember, Moses is dead. And, and Joshua needs to hear the word of the Lord because the word of, of, of the prophet of God, the man of God, Moses, Moses was gone. And so he needed to hear a word from the Lord. And in Joshua 1, 9, it says, have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord. Your God is with you wherever you go. Where was Joshua going? He was going into a land with a group of people Who wanted to stay there? Just like you. When Jesus comes into your life. And you're occupied by all of the filthy circumstances of your past. And you're occupied by your old sinful thoughts and your selfish thoughts. And you're occupied with all of the stuff even before you got saved. And it's still in there. And it's still occupying you. And Jesus has come into your life. And now all of these other things have to leave, but they don't want to go. And so Joshua's going to drive them from the land. Just like Jesus is trying to drive them out of your thinking and out of your heart and out of your circumstances. In Philippians 1, 6, Paul wrote, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise. Second Timothy 4, 18, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work. And preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And you guys know Jude chapter 1 verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. With exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power now and forever. Why am I telling you these promises? Because you need to know about the promises. When the day of crisis shows up on your doorstep. And look at chapter 37. Look what it says in verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. And he spread it before the Lord. Here's what happens. Remember? He's already in grief and repentance. He takes the threat. He goes to the temple. And he spreads it before the Lord. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gotten a bill in the mail that you had no way of paying? You get down on your knees, you spread it before the Lord and you go. Oh, God. Behold my checkbook. And behold the bill. But you know what? 
it says, then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And his prayer is really fabulous. Beginning in verse 15, it says, then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Shennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord. You alone. I like prayers in the Bible. Especially ones that are answered. I like powerful prayers. Particularly when the power of God shows up and answers those prayers. I want you to notice the content of Hezekiah's prayer. And I want to draw just a couple of things. There are really three parts to his prayer. And I just want to tell you this quickly. The prayer begins and consists of, number one, the greatness of God. So he, he begins his prayer by talking about the greatness of God. And then he continues his prayer with the greatness of the problem. Now, I think that that's interesting, because if you begin your prayers by talking about the greatness of God in direct proportion to your willingness to talk about the greatness of God, guess what happens every single time? The problem gets smaller and smaller. Here's a biblical principle, ladies and gentlemen. In direct proportion to the greatness of God, the problem will begin to shrink more and more and more. So he talks about the greatness of God. He talks about the greatness of the problem. And then he prays about the greatness of God's deliverance. And the reason why God delivers. Note what he does. Hezekiah declares God who is enthroned between the cherubim of the ark. You know what he's talking about? The ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. He declares the God who is enthroned between the angels who occupies the mercy seat. And why does he do it? Because this is the God of mercy. You've heard about the God in the Old Testament who is the good and the great God, the mighty God, the powerful God, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, Je Jehovah uh, Sid Canoe, the banner over me, whatever names of God you begin to talk about. And, and so Hezekiah talks about the God who occupies the place of forgiveness and mercy. For us, that's Jesus. Jesus is not only the ark, but he is the person who occupies the ark. Jesus is the source of, of, of grace and mercy. He addresses God as the only true God over all the kingdoms of the earth. He alone is the supreme being. He alone is the creator of heaven and earth. And then Hezekiah stresses the dignity of God and the insults that have been leveled against him by the Assyrians. And then he pleads with the Lord to open his eyes. And I think that that's important. You want to know why? Because the 
gods of the Assyrians, the gods of the idols, none of those gods could open their eyes. They were sticks and stones. And if you carve a stone with closed eyes, will it open its eyes? If it does, you're in a weird, spooky place. And that's the point. He's contrasting the real God with the fake God. Idols can't open their eyes. Idols can't listen. He then acknowledges the power and the conquests of Assyria. He acknowledges that they destroyed nation after nation. And he also acknowledges how the false gods of those nations had no ability whatsoever to spare the people that they represented. That these lifeless, powerless fabrications of human beings had no ability to deliver. And note what it says in verse 20. The reason why God should deliver. So that all the earth would know that God is God. And that he alone is God. I think this is interesting. Hezekiah doesn't pray for deliverance because the city or the nation deserve to be delivered. Oh, Lord, look upon us, your servants who have obeyed. I can't really say that. Look at your servants who have honored you and all the. Look at how we've gone to the temple and we've obeyed the laws of. Well, the city deserves special treatment because the city has been faithful and righteous and, and this city is a part of God's prophetic plan. He doesn't do any of that. If you pray because you go, God, please deliver me because I deserve it. Lord, please deliver me because I'm holy. Please deliver me because I'm righteous. Please deliver me because I'm good. Please deliver me because I'm better than everyone else. If we can learn any good lesson from this prayer, it is actually prayer. When the crisis comes, pray. My wife rebuked me last night because I was watching the fires in Southern California. And she rightfully rebuked me. She goes, why don't you turn that thing off and pray for them? Do you realize me watching their misery won't change their misery? Me watching their circumstances won't change their circumstances. Me watching their great need and their deprivation won't change their need or their deprivation. We're given a great privilege when the unexpected comes, when the desperate circumstance comes, when the traumatic occurrence takes place. Pray. We have at our disposal this powerful resource prayer. We have access to the living God. We have access to the, to the door that is always open through prayer. God is present and he can deliver again, whether it's through a miracle or whether it's through the strength to endure it. He will lead. He will guide. He will strengthen through the trial. And you'll remember in the Bible, just like the children in the fiery furnace. Do you remember when King Nebuchadnezzar? 
told all of the people that they would have to bow before the great image that was on the plain. And the three children of, of, of Israel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember they refused to bow. And remember the threat? We're going to throw you into the fire. We're going to throw you into the fire. And remember their response? Hey, look, we're not going to bow. But God will deliver us. He will deliver us in the fire. Or he will deliver us through the fire. He will preserve us in the fire or we will perish. But even if we perish, that's God's deliverance. Remember what I said earlier? That sometimes deliverance comes in an unexpected fashion, in an unexpected form. In Mark chapter 11, verse 24, Jesus said, therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. In Luke eleven ten, for everyone who asks, receives and he who seeks, finds and to him who knocks, it will be opened. In John sixteen twenty four, until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. It could very well be that Hezekiah, when he spread the letter. In the temple of God, he remembered what was written in Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Hezekiah's prayer is a prayer of deliverance in order to glorify God and magnify Him. And by the way, the king and the people would be delivered. Isaiah gives words of hope in the form of a song or a poem. We might even call this a poem of judgment and of comfort. It says, after the prayer, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, in verse 21, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you prayed to me against Shennacherib, the king of Assyria. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel, by your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to, to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense." Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. 
They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb and the grass on the housetops and the green blighted before it's grown. But I know your dwelling place. It's God's way of saying, Shenekra, I know where you live. You're coming out, you're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. I'm going to explain it to you briefly. The virgin daughter of Zion is Jerusalem. So when it says the virgin daughter of Zion has despised you and laughed you to scorn, the idea is that she will remain unmolested. Remember, the king of Assyria wants to take her and have her. She will remain untaken and unmolested. And when it says, whom have you reproached and blasphemed? It's the living Lord. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. It's God's way of saying to Shenechrib, you are a man who's been conducting himself like a God. You have raised your voice to the God of heaven. And you've heard people go, God, if you're up there. Have you ever heard someone say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. And you laugh and you go, Man, you have no idea what you're saying and who you're talking about. He says, by your servants, you've reproached the Lord. In other words, Rabshakeh and said, by the multitude of my chariots, I've come up to the height of the mountains. And by the way, the mountains in this particular instance represents the nations. He's basically saying because of my military might and because of my superiority, I've conquered anyone and everyone who I wanted to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter into its furthest height to its fruitful forest. In other words, it was it was the king of Assyria's way of saying nothing can stop me. No man, no nation, no leader can stop me. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. And the Lord gives his reason for executing judgment. You ridiculed God, you blasphemed God, you insulted God, your pride, your self-exaltation. You made yourself above every person. You've cut down the tallest trees, that's the leaders, to reach to the furthest parts of the earth. You dug wells and drunk fresh water in foreign lands to dry up the rivers of Egypt. When he sets foot in the land, he's, he's taking on the attributes of a God himself. Sennacherib says, and when I come to Egypt, the moment that I put my foot in the land of Egypt, the rivers themselves will dry up because nothing can stop me. You've met that person. Maybe you've even been that person. I can do whatever I want. And nothing can stop me. Oh man, oh man, oh man. The king of Assyria was going to learn the most basic lesson that all human beings need to learn. God is sovereign, not you. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all men. God is sovereign over all the earth. God will do what God intends to do. 
and nothing can stop him. And so when it says in verse 26, did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? He's talking. Now the Lord is speaking again. God has created all things. The lands that you conquered, the mountains that you covered and smothered. Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Here's what God is in, fact, in effect saying. I made you, Shennacherib. I created you. All of the power and all of the might and all of the majesty and all that you have and all that you occupy. Everything that you are and everything that you have. I gave to you. He's in effect saying, you're my whipping boy. It says, therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb and the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it's grown. There's a reason why you, like a raging fire, could go through them. In verse 28, but I know your dwelling place. Remember what I said to you earlier? I know where you live. I know you're coming out and you're and you're coming in and your rage against me. In other words, this is God's way of saying to Shennacherib. I know when you get up, I know when you go to bed, I know every door that you open and every door that you close. I know everything that you do. And I know what's inside your heart. I know how you hate me. Look what it says. And your rage against me. You know what the idea is? Shenekrib is aware that there's a creator God. And he hates him. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put a hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. By the way, when the Assyrians would capture people, when they would take them prisoner, they took a thing like a fish hook and they put it through their nostril, through the cartilage of your nose. They would take fish hooks and put them in the cartilage of the nose and they would take bridles and they would treat human beings like they were cattle, like they were instruments, like that they were mere property. Just like in the New Testament, it says. God is not mocked. What a man sows. That also he shall Reap. You want to treat people like animals, like chattel, like property? You want to put fish hooks through their nose and bridles around their mouth? Guess what? I'm going to put a fish hook in your nose and I'm going to put a bridle around your mouth and I'm going to take you places that you don't want to go to. And then look what it says. And I will turn you back by the way which you came. You're going to go home and you're going to go home the same way that you came here. And this shall be a sign to you. Now, the sign that's given in verse 30 is to Hezekiah and to the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. Here's the sign. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. In other words, you don't have to plant. Remember, they're surrounded. They don't have any resources. They don't know how they're going to live from day to day. And the second year, what springs from the same, also in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. The idea being, guess what? You have a future. It's not going to be this year and it's not going to be next year and it's not going to be the year after that. You are going to survive 
plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall take again root down, shall take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And those who escape Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He, He gives a metaphor, a picture. He's saying that just like you will be able to plant food and reap food, that in the future there's a spiritual fruit, there's a spiritual harvest that's going to take place. And out of that spiritual harvest, I'm going to accomplish my plans and my purposes. And by the way, a hundred years are going to go by. The king in the east from, from Babylon is going to come and destroy the city. And then in verse 33, it says, and, and then in verse 32, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's God's way of saying, I have a plan and I have a purpose and I have a will and I will accomplish my plan and my purpose and my will. And then in verse 33, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into the city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. In other words, the deliverance is going to come by me, for me, through me. The judgment will occur just like God promised. And by the way, when it says the king isn't going to come in, an arrow isn't going to be shot, A shield isn't going to take place. A siege ramp isn't going to take place. He's laying it out very, very carefully. It's not going to be any kind of a fight. And then in verse 36, look what it says. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there they were, the corpses all dead. And in Hebrew, it's very, it's stunning. It says, oh, look. They're all dead. Do you remember earlier? For those of you who don't remember chapter 36, there was one point where where Rabshakeh says, hey, look, I'll sell you 2,000 horses if you can find people to ride them. Because the weakest part of our army can destroy the strongest part of your army. God sends one angel. One angel. Someone asked me on my radio today program about slaying in the spirit. It said, is it biblical to about slaying in the spirit? I go, yeah. In Isaiah chapter 37. Uh, spirit went out and killed 180,000, 85,000 people. Only when you got slain in the spirit in the Old Testament, you didn't get back up. By the way, the assassination of Sennacherib would occur some 20 years later. And so it says in verse 37. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home and he remained at Nineveh. Here is the idea. He heard the rumor. His army is wiped out. He goes back to Nineveh. And in verse 38, now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, that his sons... Adramaleth and Sheherazar 
struck them down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, which is modern-day Turkey. Then Esharden, his son, reigned in his place. So after this failed attempt, in order to capture the city of Jerusalem, Shennacherib goes back, and he goes back to the house of his God. Why is that important? Because if you're a stinking pagan unbeliever... The safest place in the world should be in your own pagan, idolatrous backyard. This is supposed to be the place where he's the safest of all. But we know from history that his two sons took the statue in his temple and they pushed it onto their father. And he fell down and his two sons stabbed him in the back with their own sword. And the prophecy came. Literally true. So when you read this passage. And you ask and answer the question. Can we expect deliverance? When we call on God for deliverance. What can we expect? One of two things. Always. The miracle of deliverance. Or the miracle of. Of the provision of God. Sometimes when you pray, Lord, I can't take this load. Take the load off my back. God answers your prayer. Not by taking the load off your back. But by making your shoulders wider. And stronger. It may shock you. It may surprise you. It might hurt you. And it might even disappoint you. That you exist to glorify him. And that God is willing to allow you to experience whatever trial, whatever disease, whatever obstacle, whatever accident, whatever hardship, whatever financial difficulty, whatever marital difficulty, whatever relationship difficulty. And he'll strengthen you. And he will encourage you. And he will support you. And he will mold you. And he will shape you because God's goal isn't to deliver you simply from the time of trial and suffering, but to mold you and shape you into the character of Jesus. This is what the Bible says. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed into the image of his son. You wake up every morning and you have a plan. Some of you do, some of you don't. But whether you do or whether you don't, every morning that you wake up, God also has a plan to make you a little more like Jesus, to mold you, to shape you, sometimes to crush you in order to put you back together. We cry out to him. We trust him. And then we trust that he will give us the ability to walk. I want to close with just one little bit of encouragement. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? No. Or sword? No. The answer is no. And then in verses 37 and 39, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Your trial can never pry you away from the love of God and the deliverance of God. The deliverance just might not take the form that you'd hoped. Oh, but there's so much more, but we got to go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the promise of God. We thank you for the deliverance that you've given to us, the ultimate deliverance. You've freed us from sin. You've washed us and cleansed us. You've forgiven us and reconciled us to yourself. Lord, you've already given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in Jesus. No wonder Paul wrote, we are complete in him. How could we be incomplete when we're complete? How could we need something more when we have all things? And so again, Father, I pray that you would reward, that you would richly reward every man and every woman who's come to the place where they trust you, where they have confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.